Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Our reading today comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flower fades. Thank you, Garth. All right. Um, Real quick. Kids, uh, we do have, I always look around, we do have EGC, yes? Okay. So uh, second, third, uh, third, fourth, fifth grade. And follow Miss Lisa back there and be good today of all days. And then the younger kids, yeah, elevate. Um, and uh, one thing that I want to do this morning, um, and Kayla already mentioned, Mother's Day can be a complex day. Uh, certainly moms that are busting it and and putting in time, and, and you know, and it's a complicated day, and they're like, I know, but it's like the one day I get. Happy Mother's Day. Um, and then for the complex issues, which is, they are complex in abundance, um, we have chocolate, you know. Um, so ladies over 18, uh, we, this, I explain this every year. Uh, several years ago, we did, we did uh, somebody's like, well, how do we, this was like 12 years ago, we were early on, and they were like, let's get carnations for moms. And so we gave them out to the kids, and they gave them to their moms. And then the dad, Father's Day, we're like, oh, well, let's just get candy bars. And the women were like. <laughs> so we're like, all right. So the next year, they're like, we want, we want chocolate. So the next year, we got, like, Dove, you know, the nice, fancy Dove chocolates that had the sayings and poems in them and everything like that. And then they were like, no. <laughs> so... As it often takes three times for men to learn, uh, we got chocolate. We got big, full-size candy bars, not the cheap things your neighbors hand out at Halloween, but like big, good candy bars. Butterfinger, I don't know. I mean, it's all right, but when there's like Twix, the the nugget. um, Anyway, all of that. um, And then take just one minute and look down the, or 30 seconds even, look down the row or in front of you or behind you, um, look the person in the face and just say, I am really glad that you are here today and it's good to see you. All right, so do that.
All right. We got, we got to be a little calm on that because we had the video and we got everything else. And if you have reservations for any place this afternoon, we want to honor those. Uh, and I want to get you out before the Blues game, I hope. Or maybe not. Maybe we just hang out in here. Um, this morning, we continue on our sermon series, I Believe, as we walk through the Apostles' Creed. And we're kind of coming toward the end of that. Uh, we're getting toward the application here of, of uh, believing in the resurrected Jesus and then kind of the so what here. And this morning... Uh, in the creed is, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, Catholic Universal, not, it's a lowercase c, Catholic Universal, I believe in the Catholic Church and the communion of saints. I believe in the church. That was the first thing I typed when I started writing this sermon this week. It just sat there. And it felt heavy. And I felt a pit in my stomach. And I got choked up a little bit. And I had lots of thoughts and lots of questions that ran rampant in my mind. To say, and let alone say, but also to preach on, I believe in the church. Uh, my old pastor in Texas uh, had a saying, um, somebody, he was, he was uh, in an interview one time and somebody asked him what he thought was the biggest issue going on in the world today. And he was like, he said, I, I feel like a mosquito in a nudist colony. I look around and I know what to do, but where do you start? <laughs> All right. Are there issues with the church today? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, and, and if there's some, for some comforting news, there has always been issues in the church. For some even more comforting news, that's why the whole New Testament pretty much beyond the Gospels was written. Um, in fact, before the ink dries on this passage that uh, Luke writes in Acts, Paul's already having to write letters. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, um, there have always been issues with God's people. We've got a long track record of that. And I don't want to dismiss those. I don't want to just like wash over those and pretend that everything is, is fine and it's great. Um, but today, but today, without dismissing those, and even as the charge to these, I want, I want to see the church as beautiful. Washed over, presented without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish. Being made beautiful. Um, because this is who the people of God are becoming. And by his grace and mercy, one day, if his promise is fulfilled, and I think we have seen in the resurrection that he fulfills his promises this is who one day the people of God will be. Uh, so, let's get started. This beautiful picture of the bride of Christ in her origins in Acts chapter 2. She's right out of the bat here. Acts chapter 2, 42 and 43. We'll start there in the text. And they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
From the very get-go, what we see is that people who would respond to the message of the resurrected Jesus, they would put their faith and trust in him. They would commit their allegiance to him. They would renounce their other allegiances, which would die hard, as all of ours do, uh, and they would gather together, and they would begin to practice, learn, and grow, and practice this new kingdom reality together. And what I mean by this new kingdom reality is I mean this new kingdom reality and this new kingdom reality. And they would practice that together. And they would learn how to do it as a people. And this gathering would become the church. And it was never seen as optional. It was never treated like a potential for the weekend as long as schedules didn't conflict. Being part of the church, this new thing that started to permeate, it actually became more central than their ethnicity, than their economic status, than their politics, than their social structure, than their previous ways of life. This was becoming a completely new people. Not just a completely new person, but a completely new people. Um, now, there's some particulars. Now, I need to get started with this, and, and, and we're going to get these out so they can kind of, like, so they can start working um, uh, some foundational stuff, and uh, I, want, I want to be gracious with this, because I, I, there's a lot of, just like with other things, there's a lot of issues surrounding the church in our day, and I get that, and I'm going to ask you to bear with me um, and hang in there. Uh, I'm not glossing over. I'm actually calling the church to account here, but, uh, but we've got to lay some foundation stuff. And then if you, want, if you need to email me uh, and, and talk about it later, Darden would be happy to grab coffee with you. Um, here's a foundational truth that we need to know. Christ died. We often talk personal Lord and Savior. Christ died for his church. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and anybody know what follows that? Gave himself up for her. The sun takes off. If any of you ever feel like, you know, your kids are crazy, I'm raising four pastor's kids, so, uh, <laughs> that I love and that are awesome. Sorry, honey, you're the last one that has to be. Um, Christ died for his church, gave himself up for his church. The church is the bride that he is washing over and making beautiful. And we can walk in nature. We can enjoy the majesty of the mountains and the power of the ocean and the, and, and the serenity of the woods or the forest. And we can meet with friends over Bible and wine and cheese. And we can, uh, we can talk about life and we can read the Bible in the mornings. We can have our personal times of devotion. And all of those things are great and wonderful. And none of those things are the church. And none of those things are substitutes for the church. And again, I say this with caution. Because what are we talking about when we talk about the word church? And we're talking about we're seeing abused, abuse being exposed and all that kind of stuff. So I say that with caution, but bear with me. Um, I had a friend of mine who was in charge of a large men's ministry. And, and he did a great job leading it. And he was actually kind of a prominent businessman in, in, in the area. And he always used to joke. He, he liked me when, we, when I was younger. <laughs> he may still like me. I don't know. Uh, we haven't hung out in a while, but 
Um, and he would say, he's like, I, I, usually don't, I usually don't like hanging out with pastors. And I said, that's all right, I don't usually like hanging out with businessmen. And, um, but I got it, because he had to work with pastors a lot. And he had issues with who they were when outside. And he said, they're more like me than I am like them. And, I, and, and so I got it. And he said, you know, this men's ministry, this is my church. I don't need, I don't need that, I don't need those other things. This men's ministry, this is my church. And I said, and I was like, listen, I get it. Totally get it. And I, I, I think that's fine. Um, and if you just add accountability, communion, baptism, and women and children, I'd be totally fine with that. Um, there are lots of issues with the churches in our day. There's been lots of issues with the churches throughout history. But the capital C church throughout history and throughout scripture is, is never an option. We can know Jesus as personal Lord and Savior, yes, but Christ died for his church, his bride. So what does that mean exactly? What does that mean when we say church? What are you talking about? Are you talking about like everybody getting together on a Sunday morning and listening to you talk while we sit in rows? Uh, some church, some chairs were left disconnected, but still in the imperfection of our world, um, the fallenness of chairs being. Anyway, that, is that what you're talking about when you're talking about church? Uh, Francis Chan one time was speaking at a big conference in Orlando, this big, huge church in Orlando, and, and, he, and this is what he said. He gets up to talk, and he goes, I read this, I read the Bible, and, and then I look at this. It's a big, huge auditorium. And then I read this again, and then I look at this, and I look at this, and I look at this, and I... And he said, how did we read this and come up with this? And that's a valid question. The church is not, what does it mean to be the church? It's not a building. It's not a cool logo. It's not a slogan. It's not a mission statement. It's not a rockin' kids program. What do we mean when we talk about the church? It, it is, I mean, it's the people of God, it's the body of Christ, it's the bride of Christ, it's the elect, the called out, a kingdom of priests, the remnant. We are forged together and formed in a covenant with God and with one another. Submission to Christ as our risen king, gathering together often to encourage, study, learn, grow, pray together, remember, share, committed to practice our new citizenship in covenant with God and with one another. And what we see in, in Acts is the church gets off to a phenomenal start. I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, communing with one another. Right before this passage in Acts, uh, in Acts 41, it says 3,000. After Peter preaches his sermon, 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's significant church growth issues. All right? Um, but again, before the ink even dries, Paul's writing to the, the church in Galatia about their issues with baptism and with uh, circumcision. He's writing to Thessalonica, and he's writing to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians church, Christians gone wild, and they're all over the place. And he's having to address all these false teachings. And so good news, you know, here, here's the deal. When people are like, you know what, we really, we just need to recapture, and we need to be like the New Testament church. Good news and bad news. We are. We are. We're just like the New Testament church. 
to break this down and kind of talk through what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be this covenant people? Uh, Michael Bird in his book, uh, What Christians Ought to Believe, that we've kind of been going through and, and asking people to study along with, um, he breaks it down, I think, in a really helpful way uh, where in the Nicene Creed, it says that the church is one, holy, Catholic, again, meaning universal. Uh, it is one, it is holy, it is Catholic, and it is apostolic is what the Nicene Creed calls the church. So we're going to walk through that. What does it mean to be the church? The church is one. There are many denominations. Uh, ben Church is a PCA church, uh, in, and they're planting in Uganda. So different denomination, different culture. Fantastic. Uh, we have uh, uh, somebody else uh, later who's coming from the EPC, and no, nobody, nobody doesn't get along like forms of Presbyterian except for different forms of Baptist. That's even worse. Um, and uh, there are different denominations. There are cultural variations. But the capital C Church is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4. And yet there are differences. Paul spends a lot of time uh, trying to work on harmony and unity within the church where we make our differences a matter of righteousness. But he also allows in time, I mean, the entire letter to the Roman church is for Jews and Gentiles, like, stop making your differences your righteousness and start getting along for the sake. You're all sinful and have fallen short of the glory of God. And so Paul also is addressing how do we work in harmony, even with cultural variances and different denominations on secondary issues. We have one faith, but man, oh man, we have lots of ways of expressing it. Tim Keller used to talk about, uh, he talked about how the church needs various aspects of passion. You have a passion for teaching, you have a passion for doctrine, you have a passion for worship, a passion for evangelism, and a passion for justice. Rarely are all those found in one local body. But the global church as a whole, it's there. The problem, sometimes, is we tend to take the things that we're passionate about and say these are the most important. But if we can approach this with humility and we can see the global church, we can actually learn where our blind spots are. Again, Michael Bird, I love the way he puts this. When he talks about the blind spots, uh, they can help us overcome the blind spots in our own traditions. Catholics remind us of the ancient roots of the church. Baptists remind us that Christians are, the, uh, are Bible people and that's churches for believers. Methodists remind us the importance of piety and personal holiness. Presbyterians remind us about God's sovereign and covenantal promises. Uh, Pentecostals remind us that God's spirit is still with us and not on a break. Anglicans remind us to hold together the universality of our ancient faith with the protest of our protestantism. Lutherans remind us to remain true to the justification of faith. And then non-denominational, we just, we can't decide. <laughs> and even in all these different denominations, they each have a special place for this creed. These denominations can all uphold this apostolic creed. And I know that we typically decry the church in our day as a place that has tended to lack diversity. And that's probably fair to a degree. And certainly the history of why that takes place is very fair. 
Uh, but I think it's also critical to be reminded that the church, the capital C church, the followers of Jesus, are far and away. I mean, there's not even remotely a close second of any organization, you name it, religion, business, you name it, that is as radically diverse as the church. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, it is radically diverse. Every economic status, you name it. All who hold to the claim of the risen Christ. We are one. Uh, also, the church is to be holy. The church is holy because there's a couple reasons why the church, both in our uh, God's view of us and then our response to him. The church is holy because we are marked by God as his holy possession, his treasured possession. We are the bride of Christ and Jesus loves his bride. It doesn't mean we don't call it out, when, uh, not just when she's talked bad about, uh, but we also have to call it out when she's manipulated for personal gain, when she's used as a marketing ploy for some pastor's insecurity, when she is abused and her authority is used as coercion. We have to call those out. Jesus will defend his bride. He will refine her. He will drive out the salesmen and shysters, and he will expose them as he's been doing lately. James says, don't, don't think that being called to stand here and preach the gospel, which is trembling. Hebrews 13, 17 is my most and least favorite verse in all the Bible, where it says, uh, obey your leaders and submit to them. I like that part. For they are keeping watch care over your souls as those who have to give an account. Try going to bed with that. That's hard. That's heavy. Jesus loves and will defend his bride. When my boys were younger, there were times when they would talk back to their mom, and I would tell them, what do you think I would do to anybody else who talked to my wife that way? Probably punch him. I probably would. Jesus will defend his bride. God is not mocked about his treasured possession. We often talk about the world's treatment of the church. We have a little bit of a, of a persecution problem, uh, not problem, complex in, in our day. There's legitimate persecution. We, we kind of create some. The first great commission, though, given to God's people is, I will bless you, uh, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Jesus tells us that in the world we should expect trouble. In the systems of the world we should expect trouble. As followers of Jesus, we need to be less concerned about the world's response to the church and we need to be more concerned about the church's call to bear faithful witness to the resurrection of Jesus. That's our call. That's our call. Um, in other words, this is not necessary. Our holiness in response is not necessarily about us being sinless and perfect. All right? So take that pressure off. That's not our call in response. The best way to put it, maybe, is if we are God's treasured possession, then what is our treasure? Is it obvious in the church what we treasure most? There's an old saying, I'm going to put a little twist on it, because the old saying, I don't like it, is filled with guilt, but what I, this, I, do, like, I do like the spin I put on it. <laughs> uh, 
if the church were to be on trial for loving Jesus more than, for being more loyal to Jesus than our cultural power, our political power, our church size, our building program, which that's going to come in significant here soon, uh, our way of doing things, or our own comforts, you name it, if the church were to be on trial for treasuring Jesus more than the worldly stuff, would there be enough evidence to convict us? A holy people is not a perfect people. But there's evidence that God's people, are there, is there evidence that God's people treasure him, his grace, his greatness, his mercy, more than our personal wants and our personal agendas? Which the Bible calls idolatry. The church is one, the church is holy, the church is Catholic. Here again, lowercase c, universal. We've already touched on this just a little bit, but if you step back and if you step back and look at the New Testament and the geographic locations and the things that are going on in each of these cities and in each of these regions in the world and the different fights that are happening between all of the religions and all the people groups and the wealth and how it's distributed and what gods are where and how this is all being done, and you look at who Paul writes letters to and where he goes as a missionary, the diversity there is crazy. I mean, it's also very similar. There's nothing new under the sun. But the people that he talks to and addresses and all these things that are going on, it's amazing the differences. Every land, every scope of the world, and there's ultimately one universal church. This is unheard of. Used to be divided by your ethnicities into your religions, where you came from, your country, your region. That was what you believed. This, the universal church, flows through everything, which means this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have more in common with a follower of Jesus in China, in Africa, in uh, Iran, you name it, you have more in common with them than you may have with your own family members or some of your neighbors. And we should be relieved. We should be relieved that God doesn't have like a special mantle for the American church. And you guys are here. And then these other ones are down here collecting dust. God values his bride and he's committed to making his bride holy. And so God knows that the church in China suffers from persecution and the church in America suffers from distraction. And he, is, and he cares about the holiness of his bride and so he continues to wash over us to make us holy. Um, I heard a funny story, a friend of mine who was leading a missionary group uh, in Europe and there were French missionaries and there were German missionaries. And as he was talking to him, the German, and I can't remember exactly how this breaks down, but the German missionaries couldn't believe some of the language that the French missionaries were using. And the French missionaries were a bit upset at how much the German missionaries drank. And uh, I've never loved God's people more. I'm like, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. And he's having to work with both of them. Put aside your preferences and, and let's do the work. But that's, that's exactly what it is. We are one universal church. The church is one, the church is holy, it is universal, it is apostolic. What does that mean? The true church is not identified by secondary issues. The true, true church is often divided by secondary issues, but we are not identified by secondary issues. We are identified by holding to the teaching of the apostles concerning the gospel of Jesus. Namely, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. 
Or as we say often, that Christ lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died. He is risen from the grave so that as it is with him, so will it be with those who trust in him. Um, there's an old recorded interview uh, with the late Christopher Hitchens. We, we, if we're going to hit one side, we've got to hit both sides. Christopher Hitchens uh, and a Unitarian minister named Marilyn Sewell. Christopher Hitchens was kind of a, uh, he was a, a, an atheist, but I, I always liked him because he didn't care necessarily about being polite. I, I liked, I appreciate that about him. And at the end of the day, what Christopher Hitchens would say, he, he didn't say this is what he said, but his argument was, I think, probably the most solid argument you can make for atheism. You can make all your cases, but he basically was like, at the end of the day, I don't want to believe in a God. And I was like, well, hard to argue with that. You can say, well, here's why you should, should want to believe in a God, um, if you want. But anyway, he's doing an interview, uh, and, uh, the, and it becomes more about her faith than his. And she says to him, the religion that you cite in your book, which the book that he's, she's talking about is God is not great, the religion that you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian. I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of the atonement that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make a distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? And Christopher Hitchens, noted atheist, said this, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. <laughs> the church is one, the church is holy, the church is universal, and the church submits to the apostolic teachings of the gospel of the risen Christ. I believe in the one holy Catholic apostolic church. And I believe in the communion of saints. Let's go back to the scripture here. Verse 43. Awe came upon every soul. Just sit in this for a second, okay? There's not a whole lot of commentary to give this, I don't think. But just listen to this. Awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Whoo! One of the biggest struggles I have personally with the church in our day uh, is that we tend to fall to one side or the other. We tend to either to try to apply a truth that we don't necessarily believe or hold to, or we try to hold a glorious truth that we fail often to apply. This passage is beautiful, and it's powerful. This is a Genesis 1 and 2 moment for the church. This is walking in the cool of the morning with God, feeling his delight and his pleasure, giving so that none had need, communing with one another, enjoying uh, fellowship with others. I mean, it's good. 
And then, of course, we, all, we have Genesis 3. There, there is, humans mess it up. The church is not only called in our personal relationship to God and what we hold to and what we believe, we are also called in our communal relationship to one another, and we're called to our missional relationship with the world around us. We're called to be communal with each other in a time of incredible individualism. And we are called to love and serve, not just those who agree with us, but perhaps even more so those who disagree with us. We're called a light in the darkness, a city on the hill, a refuge that we would build our identity in Christ for the sake of the world, for the sake of human flourishing, for the ministry of reconciliation. We're in, we're in a unique time in history, but I guess every time is a unique time in history, right? Um, uh, lots of unprecedented things happening. Uh, always. Um, now, for us in, in Western cultures, there, are, there can be provisions made when it comes financially from nonprofits and even government organizations can help provide financially. And listen, I think we have a freedom to be okay with that. Yes, there needs to be restrictions on that. Yes, we can talk about those and what's a better way to do that, but, but we, we can also, we can also uh, this is the social structure that is available in our time and day. And if you want to talk about that later, uh, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not saying that that is uh, the be-all, end-all, um, but when, when we get too wrapped up about our money and our freedom, um, it may be a bigger issue about our, our view of our money and our freedom. There can be a social net to help care for people in need in our day. So whereas in our day it is important that we give financially, and this is what we do, we support church plants and we give financially, but I think maybe more so in our current, like, immediate culture, I wonder if it may not be as much about giving money, although, again, that's important, but also a matter of giving time, of giving hospitality, of giving energy and love, especially as we fight an ongoing pandemic against loneliness. And so here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to cast a vision for us as a church, and then I want to give us a picture, uh, an, an image to take with us uh, on this Sunday here. The church, this church, Refuge, members of Refuge, anyone and everyone, any person that walks through these doors ought to be welcomed with open arms. Any person that walks in these doors ought to be welcomed with open arms, regardless one type of person that will find themselves constantly frustrated and uncomfortable in church is the prideful. That's the only type of person that ought to find themselves constantly frustrated in church. The sinner ought to find themselves welcomed and to go deeper. It can be frustrating at times. And I'm not talking about those who struggle with pride. We all struggle with pride. I'm talking about the self-sufficient who either use religion or don't use religion as a means of proclaiming that they are self-reliant and they have no need of a savior. The church is a place for sinful people to be welcomed and loved and work together to pursue holiness. And what is holiness? Treasuring Jesus above anything. Willing to give up anything. Everyone should be welcomed here. The hurting, the broken, the oppressed, the confused, the humble, the questioning, any ethnicity, any sin, any economically settled or economically struggling, every person should be loved and welcomed. 
And then as we commit to holiness, then we get to move forward and have all kinds of fun and awkward conversations about what does holiness look like and how do we do that and how do we do that together and we have to be sensitive to one another and yet encouraging and all this kind of stuff. And that just makes for uh, continued interesting entertainment in our day. Every person should be loved as we sort through our junk and learn how to trust Jesus more and more and more and deal with our shame and guilt and all that stuff. We're in a time of radical individualism. Radical individualism throughout history has failed over and over and over again. Uh, and, it, and it's already failing again. We're seeing this play out as radical individuals now have formed tribes because we're not meant to be alone. And so we are radically individualistic tribe now. And our tribes, man, if you fall into a tribe, the goal lines keep moving further left and further right and what you have to declare and what you have to be against and who is the latest enemy and how are we going to fight this enemy and you got to keep moving with the times because if you don't keep up you're going to find yourself on the outside and for our people we want all grace and no atonement and for their side we want all atonement and no grace not the church not the bride of Christ the requirements here are that we all need radical grace and the great news is that our founder and king, the CEO of our organization, has covered the tab. He has provided the atonement. He is our entrance fee, lest we think we have to pay our own with our own promises and behavior. He is our example, lest we think we're left to our own whims. And he is our victor, lest we think we're, we're still exposed to the dangers of sin and death. And so we walk humbly and confidently and beautifully as the bride of Christ, when we treasure him more, and even in the midst of chaos, there can be beauty. I want to leave you with this image this morning. This is, we've got a picture coming up here. This is Vedran Smilovich, also known as the cellist of Sarajevo. He was a principal cellist for the Sarajevo Opera, grew up in a very musical family. And he lived in Sarajevo when the siege of his city began in April 1992. Bosnian Serbs were armed and they shelled the capital city. They had snipers pointed against civilians and the siege would last nearly four years. May 27, 1992, an artillery shell exploded in front of a bakery while people were waiting in line for bread. 22 people were killed and more than 100 others were badly injured. The next day, Smilovich, dressed in his formal wear for a classical concert, carried a chair and his cello out into the courtyard. And even under the threat of continued martyr, mart, uh, mortars and snipers, he began to play, I'm going to butcher this guy's name, Tommaso Albanani's Adagio in G minor as a memorial to the massacre. And when he had finished, he picked up his cello and he picked up his chair, and he went back inside under the cover of safety. And he repeated this performance in the square every day for 22 days, varying the times of day for security reasons. It was one day of performance for every civilian that was killed. Smilovich made a point to play during the funerals for people of Sarajevo during the siege, that was particularly courageous because snipers would be set up just to inflict more pain. They would be set up particularly outside of funerals. He played at graveyards 
and other destruction, other sites of destruction. Here he is at the library of Sarajevo. 1993, he was able to flee for the safety of Ireland and even up till today lives in Northern Ireland. This image, I think, is twofold. When the church prizes Jesus above everything else, despite the destruction and suffering and chaos, danger, grief, frustration, angst, Jesus sits in the middle of our messed up, chaotic lives and produces beautiful music out of the ashes. And also, when the church prizes Jesus above everything else, we prize Jesus above personal and political agendas, warring cultures, telling everyone to stay quiet and if, they don't, if they're not like us and then questioning their silence. When we love someone different than us, when we just listen, when we hold our convictions firmly but humbly, when we resist mic drop comments and sarcastic comebacks, when we disagree with the best of an opposing opinion and not just low-hanging fruit, when we open wide the arms of grace and forgiveness and mercy that we have received, when someone's kid runs crazy and spills your coffee, and instead of giving a look of judgment, you give a compassionate look, when we celebrate with someone who got the promotion that we wanted or the grade we thought we deserved, when we strive to understand as image bearers, uh, strive to understand people as image bearers and not just opposing agendas or threatening agendas, when we steward our voice and our influence for true justice on behalf of the disadvantaged in our world, then the bride who bears the image of Jesus sits in the middle of the battlefield It's not always appreciated, and that's okay. We don't need to be appreciated. But the bride sits in the middle of the rubble, in the middle of the chaos that is our world, and makes beautiful music. And our commission is to be the church as imperfect and messed up as we are, that our holiness is that we treasure Jesus more than anything. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Let's pray. Jesus, you are making your church beautiful. You are committed to that, which also means exposing exposing the abuse, exposing uh, things that are off. It means calling us to repentance in a position of humility and not pride or arrogance. It means that we remember more than anything, that we are loved by you, that you are our hope. And we, when we do these things imperfectly, but when we do these things, this is what is beautiful. This is what bears witness to the truth. This is what presents to the world that there is a hope beyond just getting our agenda accomplished. There is life beyond this world. There is a kingdom, a city within a city. So Holy Spirit, continue to work on us, refine us, lead us to repentance, and make your people beautiful and not not just refuge any and every church that gathers this morning. I pray that you would lead us to conviction 
and a humble confidence in you that we would be your people and bear your image well. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.